to chapter four of how to be an anti-racist. Again, I'm just going to flow, just figuring this out. Chapter four is about, is about biology. Um, there is, uh, there are, uh, there's a tweet that I would tweet thread that I want to read by, and I hopefully I've been listening to his name. Hopefully I will not butcher it, but I apologize that I do. Anand Jareed Hernandez there's a tweet thread that I'm going to read by him. And then someone sent me something from Report a Scene um, about a situation that's going on that I want to um, just read. It's, from, it's an anonymous, um, they actually, it's an anonymous um, report. And so I'm just going to read it to you because um, it, it impacts black and brown people. So um, I'm going to get started with uh, the the basics of biology. Okay, so he again, Doctor. Um, uh, uh, he has um, created. Um, Doctor Kendi has some two two definitions here. One is biological racist, and it is defined as one who is expressing the idea that races are meaningfully different in biology, and that these differences create a hierarchy of value. And then there's a bio, biological anti-racist, one who is expressing the idea that the races are meaningfully the same in their biology and there is no one, no one genetic racial difference. And so as I was reading this, I, um, I was really impacted. I really had some, um, this, this chapter, and I'm sure others will as well, um, really impacted me. This story, his, it's about his classroom um, story and it really hit home for me. It's about a white teacher and how this white teacher uh, prioritized, whether consciously or unconsciously, the needs of the, the three white students, the very small minority of white students, I mean students in the classroom. And I've had this experience because I've been the only in so many situations, um, particularly growing up and not having the vocabulary to know that I was being treated differently um, and being gaslight. Um, gaslit by those individuals, particularly those adults who, I mean, I can say they should know better, but hell, most whiteness has no clue about what it does. If it's not being actively white supremacist, it thinks it's, or, or segregationist, it thinks it's, um, you know, one of the quote unquote good guys. So um, on the first page, I highlighted this, um, but generalization of uh, but generalizing the behavior of racist white individuals to all white people is as perilous as generalizing the individual faults of people of color to the entire race. And I wrote a note down here. This is why I use the term whiteness. And this is the trigger for a lot of white people. And this is where the hypocrisy um, steps in. Um, and this is for specifically for you white people. And I'm not using whiteness here. I'm using white people. Um, the fact that I have to use whiteness because you never use blackness. You call me black and you have no compunction, no hesitation, no problem with calling me black um, because you see me as a group. Um, I represent the group of blackness. But at the moment I say white or call you an individual or white person, you become um, defensive. It's why are we talking about race? You have no, 
no um, issues with calling me black. Um, the opposite of black is white. So, and if, and, and I didn't create this system, but it's just another example of how white people are, the system is set up. So white people are individuals and everybody else are groups of people. And we talked about this before. Um, and, um, so, okay. So that, that's that, um, then it says, um, she acted that way. We should we should say because she is a racist. Um, so he's talking about this teacher, um, and then um, I just highlighted this 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 um, data point that says during the night two thousand nineteen. I'm sorry, two thousand thirteen fourteen academics year. Black students were four times more likely than white students to be suspended from public schools, according to Department of Education data. And so this goes back to because you have the segregationist who will say it's because we're inferior and we don't know how to behave in school. You'll have the assimilist who says um, there's nothing inherently wrong with them. We just need to teach them to fit inside this, 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 um, this system of middle-class whiteness. Um, and, and it's not inherently their fault. They just don't know any better. And then you have the, um, and I can tell you as an educator, I fit into that mold. I definitely fit there. Um, and then you would have the anti-racist who would see this, who I hope I am now actively being, who would see this as, um, why, are you, why are you suspending more black students than white students? that tells me that something's wrong with the system and we need to fix the system. So I just wanted to point that out. So, okay. So on page 46, he defines microaggressions as brief everyday exchanges that send denigrating messages to certain individuals because of the group membership. And now I'm going to highlight it this. I don't think it's coincidental that the term microaggressions emerged in popularity during the so-called post-racial era that some people assumed we'd entered with the election of the first black president. The word racism went out of fashion in the liberal haze of racial progress, Obama's political brand, and conservatives started to treat racism as an equivalent to the N-word, a vicious um, pejorative rather than a descriptive term. With the word itself becoming radioactive um, to some, passe to others, some well-meaning Americans started consciously and perhaps unconsciously looking for other terms to identify racism. Microaggressions became part of a whole vocabulary of old and new words like cultural wars and stereotypes and implicit bias and economic anxiety and tribalism. And then um, I highlighted this and I wrote on what I'm saying now, I wrote in the margins and I will also adopt this, what I'm about to say. I do not use microaggressions anymore. I detest the post-racial platform that supported its sudden popularity. I detest its component parts micro and aggression. A persistent daily hum, low hum of racist behavior is not minor. I use the term abuse because aggression is not as exacting a term. Abuse accurately describes the actions 
and its effects on the people. Distress, anger, worry, depression, anxiety, pain, fatigue, and suicide. What others people call racial microaggressions, I call racist abuse. And then I bring into, um, I, this is brings me to back to, again, I'm gonna keep railing on this compassion and empathy um, component that we find um, being heralded in the tech space um, because a lot of what I'm supposed to extend compassion and empathy to are microaggressions um, or as he defines them, abuse against myself and people like me. But I'm supposed to sit back and, and, and assume best intentions um, while I'm being hurt. And that is not... Um, and, and, and I'm sure that's not the intention of the people who are championing this, but that's the impact. And so impact always trumps intention. And I also have a problem that this, these conversations are being had by mostly white people who don't have the lived experiences of being targets of racism. So that is also an imbalance. So your first homework assignment this week is um, about microaggressions. So it comes from page 46 and says microaggressions is a term used to describe constant verbal and nonverbal abuse um, racist people unleash on black people whenever we go, wherever we go day to day. List five examples of microaggressive behavior that you've participated in. This is your own opportunity to self-reflect and call yourself out on microaggressive behaviors that you've done to people of color and particularly black people. So that's assignment number one. So he goes into page 48 with racist teachers misbehaving kids of color do not receive inquiry or empathy or legitimacy. We receive orders and punishments and no excuses as if we were adults. The black child is ill-treated like an adult and the black adult is ill-treated like a child. And this I talk about a lot when I share how black people, black youth, black children are adultified. And the research has shown that you see a black girl as being um, responsible for her behavior as an adult at the age of five. And I want you to think about that, particularly those of you who have children. I want you to look in your little white kid's face. And if they're less than eight, because you, you adultify young black boys by the age of 10. And I want you to look at their young uh, faces. And I want you to see their behaviors. And I want you to see how silly and, and, and um, clumsy and defiant and um, all those things that uh, they, they do in your home. And, um, and I want you to try to think about what that would be like if your young person, if the person you love, who you recognize as being a child, were being treated as an adult. Because that's how it is in our communities. That's how we have to be taught to go out into the world at a very young age. We lose that innocence. We don't have that innocence anymore. Um, I had a story of being with a friend when I was in San Diego and we were um, at the zoo and um, I was already uncomfortable. I'm telling you right now, I'm already comfortable at this point when there's just a whole bunch of white people around me and I'm just one of few um, people of color. And she has two daughters and um, they knew that this park was coming up 
um, ahead of us. And she just let them run off in front of her. And I was just like shocked. Um, and when we got to the place and we sat out and I had to explain to her, I'm like, our, we can't do that to our black babies. We can't just let them run off and we can't, they're not in our eyesight. Um, because either something will happen to them or they will be blamed for something. And then I just started to cry because I thought about her five-year-old daughter who is still treated like a child, who is treated as, with innocence and our babies are not. And it just made me think about my childhood and how early I lost that innocence and had to learn to walk out into the world or be in the world as a mini adult, just because it was not safe for for me to go out being sil the silly little five-year-old that I was because it's not accepted. Um, I just really want you to think about the various ways that white supremacy makes it safe for whiteness and um, does it for blackness. So, um, so I just said, reading about this experience, and this is about him being in school, uh, I'm reminded that this is our experiences and, and, and my heart breaks. So that's just, it's just, I just think about all the little black kids from, you know, generations who were never allowed to be children, who are treated so unfairly. And um, it just broke my heart just reading that. No one taught me that these differences are meaningless to our underlining humanity, the essence of biological anti-racist. Adults had in so many ways taught me that these superficial differences signified different forms of humanity, the essence of biological racism. Biological racists are segregationists. Biological racists rest on two ideas, that race is meaningfully different in their biology, and that these differences create a hierarchy in value. Um, biological racial difference is one of those widely held racist beliefs that few people realize they hold, nor do they realize that those beliefs are rooted in racist ideas. So um, your homework assignment number two is from page 49, Biological racial difference is one of those widely held racist beliefs that um, few people realize that they hold, nor do they realize that those um, beliefs are rooted in racist ideas. So I want you to reflect on and write about examples in your personal on your of your personal beliefs and um, biological racial differences. Okay, so these are not. I know these are hard, and some of you are going to push back and say, I don't have these, but I want you to take a moment and really think about these because I have them. I have them as a black person because I was taught that people who were poorer than me, people who um, had disabilities, all kinds of things were somehow less than I was. And I was able to look down on them as a black person. I know you as a white person have these. So you, we can only face things, the hard things, if we we can only deal with the hard things if we face them. So this is your opportunity to just to dig deep. You can do this by yourself. You don't have to do it with anybody. You don't have to share this with anybody. I just need you to do the hard work um, because you cannot be anti-racist if you will not face the fact that you are racist. And so um, then we talk about, he talks about how the Bible was used. And so I highlighted this the, at the top of page 50, the paragraph how black people are biologically distinct 
because of slavery. Uh, at the 1988 American Heart Association Conference, a black hypertension researcher said African Americans had higher hypertension rates because only those able to retain high levels of salt survived consuming the salt word of the Atlantic Ocean during the, the Middle Passage. I've bounced this off a number of colleagues, and it seems certainly plausible. Um, Clarence um, Graham told um, swooning reporters, plausibility became proof, and the slavery hypertension theses received the red carpet in the cardiovascular community in the 1990s. Graham did not arrive at the thesis in his um, research lab. It came to him as he read Roots by Alex Haley, who needs scientific proof when a biological biological racial distinction can be imagined by reading fiction, by reading the Bible. And so um, I've been talking more and more about how the Bible has been used um, as a tool, as, as particularly still in 2019, it's one of the um, strategies and tools um, for the enslavement of the minds of, of people. Um, and, and I see, and you can disagree, I'm not going to debate this, um, because you can see how much harm has been inflicted on people for generations around the world based on religious text. Um, and so I won't get into uh, the one thing I will is, is the same Bible that taught me that all humans descended from the first pair also argued for immutable human differences, the result of divine curse. So he gets into all of those things that are in the Bible um, that, that explain, that people have used to explain and justify slavery. Um, and he talks about Darwin. I have a totally different idea and perspective about Darwin's work. Um, I never saw the, um, well, it was never taught to me from the perspective of being a segregationist and, and highly racist. Um, but as I see it now, um, it definitely had, was and was used um, to promote this, this very uh, racy, these very racist ideas. Um, so it says, prompting biologists um, Charles Darwin to write in his opening pages, The Origin of Species in 1851, the view which most naturalists entertain and which I formerly entertain, namely that each species has been independently created, is erroneous. He offered a theory of natural selection that soon was used as another method to biologically distinguish and rank the races. The naturally selected white race was winning the struggle, was evolving, was headed towards perfection, according to social Darwinists. The only three outcomes available for the weaker races was extinction, extinction, slavery, or assimilation. And, we, and he talks about we see that with um, Native Americans, with Africans, and then with um, Chinese and Eastern um, Europeans. And then it talks about eugenics. So a lot of this biological stuff is just, it, it oh boy, 
So it, it talks about like the transatlantic eugenics movement aimed to speed up natural selection with policies encouraging reproduction among those with superior genes and re-enslaving or killing the gen- their genetic inferiors. Global outrage after the genocidal eugenics-driven policies of Nazi Germany in the mid-20th century led to a led to the marginalization of biological racism within academic thought for the first time in 400 years. And yet, the, and yet marginalization in academic thought did not mean marginalization in common thought, including the kind of common thinking that surrounded me as a child. And then he talks about the Genome Project and how when it was announced that 99% that, you know, that the truth was that uh, regardless of race and uh, more than 99%, 99.9% of us were the same. Shortly after that, uh, scientists planning the next phase of the human genome project were, were being forced to confront the treacherous issue, the genetic differences between race. A troublesome inheritance made the case that there is a genetic component in, uh, to human social behavior. So they're trying to explain, since it's 99.99%, 99.9% the same, they have to explain that the difference of this 0.01% is behavior, and that's how whiteness is, um, is, is better. And so this is what I want you really to understand how whiteness is, how transient whiteness is, because even in the face of data of of truth, um, and I, I make a distinction between truth and facts because facts change, and we see it when whoever takes over, whoever's in power, changes the facts. But truth remains the same, and even the, in face of the data and face of truth, whiteness changes; it shifts to now explain that thing as well. So um, on page fifty four. Race is a mirage, but one that humanity has organized itself around in very real ways. Um, And this talks about the assimilists who believes the single, um, you know, the single race makers who are like, oh, we're all one race. Let's just let's just ignore this. Or the assimilists like um, believe in the post-racial myth that talking about race constitutes racism and that if we stop identifying by race, then racism will miraculously go away. They fail to realize, and I don't think they fail to realize, but I'm going to keep going here. They fail to realize that if we stop using racial categories, then we will not be able to identify racial inequalities. If we cannot identify racial inequalities, then we will not be able to identify racist policies. If we can't identify racist policies, then we cannot challenge racist policies. If we cannot challenge racist policies, then racist power's final solution has been achieved. A world of inequality none of us can see, let alone resist. Um, And so we have to, although we are the same, the policies don't make us the same. And until the policies change, it is terminating racial categories is potentially the last and not the first step of anti-racist struggle. So your third um, homework assignment is from this page, 54. What strategy do you intend to use to challenge single race makers and assimilists 
who argue that ignoring the mirage of racial differences while not challenging the reality of racial policy and actions is the answer to a post-racial world. And um, that's where I'm going to end that. And then I want to get into, I'm going to read the Anon's tweet thread right quick. Just not all of it, but I'm going to put it inside the chat. I mean, put it inside the resources. Um, But this was in refer. It says, there are at least two traditions of racism in American life, the flagrant and the insidious. Racism with a hood and a racism with a smile. Racism that bombs churches and racism that asks to touch your hair. The racism of David Duke and the racism of Thanksgiving of Thanksgiving Uncle. And so I'm gonna add that thread to the um, to the um, resources so you can read the rest of that. Um, and then I want to read the um, so this came to me as an anonymous, and it was in reference to Drift, which is a um, they have a the their handle on Twitter is Drift at Drift, and it's connect our sales teams with future customers now. And so I, I get I, I'm assuming they did some kind of rally petition. Um, uh, picketing outside of a, a of a um, conference, and this person um, that started it was um, Dave Gerhardt, and some people had some challenges with that. And so, this I'm just going to read you the DM that I received. Hi Kim, first thank you for all the wonderful work you do. Secondly, I'm sorry to reach out to you through a fake Twitter account. I wanted to share something to report a scene, but wanted to remain as anonymous as possible as I am worried about retaliation from my company. If you have a moment, please check out the thread, which I um, just explained. The woman in the thread and I'll add the thread to the um, resources, particularly Allison, is calling out a company calling out a company called Drift, a Boston-based startup full of all the cliches of tech bros and misogynistic leaders you can imagine. They are so out of touch and yet claim to be all about DNI since the founders are Latinx. In a 300 plus company, I can literally count on the I can literally count the number of black employees inside the company on one hand. And on the hiring page, they still have the face of a black engineer who left the company almost two years ago in an effort to seem inclusive. And yet this, and yet for this guerrilla marketing stunt, they blatantly hired mostly black people to stage a fake marketing protest at a fancy marketing conference. None of these protesters are full-time employees of Drift. It strongly seems that as people of color, they are being opportunistically used for their image. They are hired to brandish absurd signs, cause a ruckus outside a professional conference in an effort to chase attention to the, of the arguably white collar professionals who otherwise wouldn't give them the time of day otherwise. 
this move is so incredibly in bad taste given how many black and brown people are actually protesting on the streets of this country for life-threatening social and political causes. Drift is soulless, trying to monetize on black on this black activist look movement phenomenon for marketing and PR and possibly capitalizing on these workers' need for employment and jobs. To be perfectly honest, I do not know what my goal is for sharing this with you other than trying to report to someone the absurdity, racist tone of this company's behavior. It's been grading me all day, and there's little I can do besides submitting an anonymous glass door review, which I've already done, since the company has very few people of color or Black people in it, and leadership does not, in all cap, listen to feedback. Thank you for reading, and at the very least, allow me a way to vent this weird feeling I spent almost a year in this nightmare company and finally left after a sexual harassment incident. And I just can't believe what all they get away with. Thank you again. Sorry to offload this onto you in such a weird way. So um, I just read that to you just because I want you to understand that this is a part of our culture. This is a part of how business is done. This is a part of capitalism. And until we're ready to do this homework, and I know some of this work is going to be really upsetting for many of you, really make you uncomfortable, but I don't care because we have to do the real work because if we're not doing the real work, we become, you become performative and then you do to some level of what has been described in this um, DM to me. Um, and you end up displaying black and brown people um, in ways that further harms them. And we have to stop that. So thank you um, and have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Hashtag Causing Podcast. I would like once again to give thanks to the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, Professor Ibram X. Kendi. Learn more about his work at his website at ibramxkindy.com. Please consider becoming an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Call the Scene movement by visiting the website at hashtagcallthescene.com. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.